Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Media News. Uh, Media News aims to be an authentic voice, bringing you the real truthful stories from the Middle East with a particular focus on the Kurdish question that is often ignored, self-censored, or suppressed by the mainstream media platforms. Today, it's just such a great honor um, for us and everybody who follows events in Northeast Syria to be joined by uh, Nadine Mainza. Uh, Nadine is the chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, the USCIRF. Uh, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom is an independent, bipartisan, federal government entity established by the U.S. Congress to monitor, analyze, and report on religious freedom abroad. USCIRF makes foreign policy recommendations to the President, the Secretary of State, and Congress intended to deter religious persecution and promote freedom of religion and belief. In May of 2020, Nadine was reappointed by the White House to a second two-year term as chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Having served as its vice chair in 2019, Nadine has represented USCIRF in delegations to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, Bahrain, Indonesia, Iraq, Azerbaijan, Thailand, Taiwan, and Uzbekistan. She has traveled in her own capacity to to better her understanding of religious freedom conditions in Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and Bangladesh, as well as recently spending a month in Northeast Syria. Nadine's writings on various topics, policy topics, have been published in numerous publications domestically and internationally. She is a graduate of the Pennsylvania State University. She is married with three children living outside of Philadelphia in Chester County, Pennsylvania. In a statement following your election, Nadine, you pledged to continue to unflinchingly identify threats to religious freedom around the world. And we have all watched, those of us who follow the Kurdish issue in Northeast Syria, with tremendous admiration and followed your principled work in regards to abuses by Turkish and Turkish-affiliated armed gangs in Northeast Syria. Despite the political relationship of Turkey with the USA, you've worked tirelessly to highlight abuses and threats to religious freedoms. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to welcome you here this evening on the seventh anniversary of the Yezidi genocide to share some of your thoughts with us here today. Welcome, Nadine. Thank you. That's such a generous um, introduction. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation, especially on this day, as, as we remember seven years ago, um, this horrific genocide against the Yazidi community um, that still hasn't recovered. And um, the international community has a lot to do in order to stand alongside them and, and help them to have a better future. 
and what sort of things in Europe Unidin could the international community do? I mean, we know that, for example, Turkey and Iraq um, are trying to um, impose themselves um, on the on the on, in Schengel, which was the scene of that um, horrible like genocide. What do you think? How do you think the the religious freedoms of the Yazidis could be best protected? Well, first of all, I, I um, as as I came into um, uh, this, this anniversary, I was asked um, to give a couple of um, remarks at, at a Yazda event and a Free Yazidi event, and in particular, was asked to look back um, at how we got here. So I, I took a look at USERF reports in the years leading up to the genocide, and what I, I found was some of the same things we're hearing today. Um, uh, uh, for instance. Um, you sort of talked about um, the disputed areas and how um, the Yazidis were experiencing, you know, and, and Christians violence, intimidation, discrimination, but particularly in those areas um, that were disputed between the central government and the Karaji. And actually there were fewer <laughs> violent episodes in 2012 and 2013 than in the previous years, but there was this growing sense of impunity because most of the violence was against the Shia community, not the Yazidis, not the Christians, but there was a sense of impunity because there was they, they were becoming emboldened, the, these extremists, because no one was stopping their violence. And, and that had sent a message to the minority communities to flee, and a lot of them were leaving in large numbers. The ones that stayed, as we know, ended up um, being uh, um, subject to genocide. And, and so when you look at, at Sinjar now, you look at the, the Nineveh Plains, you look at the disputed areas, um, there is still uh, um, violence, intimidation, discrimination in those areas. And there is still um, a climate of impunity. But now it is, of course, the Iranian-aligned militias that have, have taken over this area and now commit atrocities against Yazidis, Christians, and other minorities to the point that the U.S. government in January um, sanctioned the PMF chairman, Bili Afayad, for these kind of um, atrocities. So, you know, the U.S., the international community first, of course, needs to support these victims with humanitarian assistance. And, and Sinjar, frankly, has hardly been rebuilt. So there, the, the Iraqi government, as well as the international community, ne needs to pressure the Iraqi government to do more. And, and also, I think the international community needs to be more generous with 83 members of the coalition to defeat Daesh. Certainly, there should be more countries involved in supporting this um, you know, beleaguered community. But the US has a special responsibility because of our history with Iraq. We have a lot of levers we can push to pressure the Iraqi government and the KRG to settle these disputed areas. And the, the Iraqi constitution is so clear. They're supposed to give the residents a say they're supposed to let them decide who is going to rule, who is going to be in charge, either KRG or the Iraqi government. Yet these deals like the Sinjar Agreement that was made with the Iraqi government and the KRG excluded um, the residents and the Yazidi community from having a say. So there's got to be a better way forward. And the international community needs to be fighting for the Yazidi people to have that better future. Thank you so much. Um, so then moving on, um, as I um, alluded to earlier, you recently, I don't know, uh, you went to the north east of Syria. Um, yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit of background for our listeners to how your, your, you know, how your involvement in northeast Syria began? 
Sure, that would, I'd be glad to. I, I first visited in November of 2019 after Turkey had invaded and was just stunned by, first of all, the, the religious freedom conditions that while Yusuf had been following uh, Northeast Syria and been writing about these positive conditions, it was really interesting for me to meet with religious communities, to see churches with steeples, to just understand that there really was this religious freedom that we weren't seeing in the areas neighboring Northeast Syria, and also what it, what Turkey had taken away from the people, the atrocities that were being committed. And it, it, it struck me in a different way than, than most places I'd ever visited because I felt as if, unlike a lot of places, for instance, I had just been in Myanmar, um, been in Bangladesh at the, the Rohingya um, camps just months before and, and still you know, have a strong burden to, to lighten that load and to see what we could do to help the, these victims of genocide um, that are now in Bangladesh. But the US government doesn't have all the levers to, to make a lot of changes in Burma or in Bangladesh. But in Northeast Syria, the U.S. has all the levers. <laughs> so as I said here, and I, I looked at the front lines where Turkey has invaded and met with, with um, doctors and nurses who had cared for, for civilians who had been killed, who had died on their operating tables because of this invasion, and realized this was all U.S. policy. And, and it, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't aligned with our values. And most people in Washington I knew would not be happy if they understood how this entire conflict, but obviously most had not. And so it, it was really an interesting for me um, opportunity um, to come back and just start telling the story um, of what I was seeing and, and what this meant for the US government to be to, to have these policies and what could happen if they changed them. And um, the you know the US Commission, as you know, um, strongly support stood with me um, and, and and made some pretty bold recommendations in our report that I'm pleased that, that we were able to do. And I think really changed the game in Washington to focus on that not only did the people of Northeast Syria, you know, lose 11,000 lives fighting ISIS, really to rid the evil um, for everyone in the world, not, not just for them, but they also built a government, this mm. governance that respects religious freedom, gender equality, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, your gender, or your religion is, you have the same seat at the table. It's really remarkable. And as people have come to understand, um, more and more and more people obviously support this project. So I was able to visit again last October, November for a month, and then I was just there again in, in April. And so these trips have given me more opportunity to just understand how the government works better to meet more people and to be able to come back and better really tell the story of what the people of Northeast Syria have done. So you talked about those levers and um, these uh, levers, presumably, uh, some of these levers have just been pulled um, in the most recent, I mean, just last week, I think, that um, the US Treasury has sanctioned particular individuals who raise funds for Al-Qaeda based in Turkey and also um, have sanctioned this uh, Turkish-affiliated group Arar al-Shakir um, and the leader Abu Shakra. Um, this must be welcome, welcome news. It is, and it it is showing that the the administration is paying attention. Mm. I was especially encouraged, you know, by the sanction of Abu Shakra because, as we know, he was present when Hev Hevran Khalif was murdered. Yeah, and yet he has been welcomed, um, like to the Syrian opposition coalition meetings. He has been pictured with Nasser al-Harira, the, the Syrian opposition coalition leader. 
and 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 the U.S. has has been very friendly and supportive of the Syrian opposition, um, meeting with them regularly and having our officials photographed with them. So, so to me, this I think is going to put a line in that uh, because I, how on earth can we continue um, to be sitting at a table with people who have strong relationships with sanctioned individuals and militias? And I would recommend that um, your listeners go um, to the State Department's um, International Religious Freedom Report that was just um, released a couple months ago. This is not USERP. So USERP, we have our own reports. And of course, ours have become pretty well known, advocating, making some pretty strong recommendations in favor of the autonomous administration. Hmm. But, but the State Department's own reports go through and, and document the atrocities as well. And and they, they really... Um, they, they go hard on all of these militias and they list the atrocities. I'm, I'm reading here, you know, they talk about how, um, you know, um, these Turkish backed groups commit human rights abuses, reportedly targeting Kurdish and Yazidi residents and other residents, including detentions and abductions of civilians, torture, sexual violence, forced evacuation from home, looting and seizure of private property, transfer of detainees, individuals across the border into Turkey, cutting off water to local populations, recruitment of so child soldiers, looting and desecration of religious shrines. I mean, so it's all documented in their own reports now. So I think what we have seen is um, when, when you when you sort of started talking about these atrocities happening in in the areas Turkey had invaded and occupied, most people I talked to were even in the administration were completely surprised. They had no idea if Green had basically become the caliphate. I mean, Turkey here here when Efreen, so, so the the ISIS caliphate in in Raqqa, you know puts these conditions that, that are so horrific, the world unites against them. Yet Turkey yeah. in a freeing creates the same type of environment and the world looks away. And so that's yeah. what we saw a couple years ago when I first came upon what was happening here. And, and I think what's happening now is, is the world isn't looking away quite as much. <laughs> now they're being forced to, to admit the truth, which is these atrocities are unacceptable under any circumstance, it was unacceptable when ISIS was doing it. It should be unacceptable when a Turkey, when Turkey and a NATO ally is doing it. And what's especially heartbreaking is they'd gone into a place that had religious freedom, that women were treated equally, and 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 really um, it turned it into these horrific conditions. So I'm I'm hopeful in that what I've seen from this administration is a real willingness to look at what's happening and to consider the options. And I've certainly met with a lot of officials and, and been welcomed. And I'm encouraged that that those dialogues are happening. And I'm hoping as they reevaluate their, re their Syria policy that they will um, follow re user's recommendations um, to support the autonomous administration. It's very, very encouraging. It's so encouraging to listen uh, to listen to you commenting about that. I mean, it's it's you know, and as you said, it's so well documented by numerous human rights organisations of Turkey's war crimes in Afrin after uh, Turkey invaded in January two thousand and eighteen Afrin, previous uh, majority Kurdish city. Um, and despite all these reports of such grotesque human rights abuses and forced. Um, you know, they kidnap people and take them to Turkey and, and, and jail them illegally. And as you say, have you detailed all the sexual torture and the um, kidnapping? Um, why do you think, I mean, I'd be really interested to hear why you think it is that, I mean, that's, that's America, that's the United States, and it's really very welcome. And, um, but why do you think countries 
uh, within the European Union and, for example, Great Britain. Why do you think they've been so silent and, 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 and not taking any action in regards to this? Uh, what I have learned is is governments will only do the hard thing when they're forced to. And dealing with Turkey is a hard thing. You know, it's really easy to call out um, a country that's a, that's a quote enemy and, and the, the, the problems that they have. But, but to risk a relationship with Turkey that's supposed to be an ally, you know, how do you do it? it it's just complicated for these countries. So instead, what they're doing is looking away because it's just too complicated to figure out a way forward. There is no way to easily get Turkey out of NATO. Um, so this is, this is a little more unique than say Iran, that country that most have already agreed is an, an ally, isn't a friend, and in fact is an enemy. But what do we do when our own friend is doing this? Um, and so I, I think that because of the war fatigue in Iraq and Syria, that's also been, there's no political benefit for a politician to enter this conversation. Uh, you know, everyone is against forever wars. And so this is another reason why talking about the autonomous administration is so important. And I'm so glad to see the leaders really focusing on, on that now in Northeast Syria, because the, the autonomous administration of Northeast Syria is the way to end a forever war. It's, it's by holding the ground we won is how we don't have to come back and do it again. And that is the one thing the U.S. has missed and, and, and the, the, the entire foreign policy world has missed is, is we focus on wars and we focus on diplomacy, which is really keeping nation states happy. But, but at the end of the day, if we aren't supporting governance that holds the ground that we want in these wars, then what's the point of the wars? And we, we've sacrificed so many men and women in these battles without a long-term plan to hold the ground we want. And that is what is happening in Northeast Syria. And they're not just holding the ground, they're, they're building a governance that, that, that supports these values that Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Rights, you know, since 1948 has been talking about. And here they've done it in a way without anyone's help, with hardly any money. And you can't, as we've learned in Iraq, you can't just go in and write a constitution and talk people into running it the way they should. People have to do it themselves. And, and that's what the people of Northeast Syria have done. And so to me, this is such an easy return on investment for the US. There's so little required. We're talking about giving political recognition to the autonomous administration as a local legitimate government. Lifting sanctions would, would be an a, enormous way to empower the people in Northeast Syria to be able to build their own economy, be able to bring in US companies to invest with so many resources, with oil and, and agriculture, and, and let, let the people build an environment so they can raise their own funds and pay for their own government. This, the government in Northeast Syria doesn't need nation building, doesn't need um, the US to come and teach them how to do everything. What, what they just need is for us to let them survive and, and continue to build. Um, and, 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 there's a really wonderful way forward and it's a win-win all the way around. I just think it's because of the war fatigue, I think everyone has been ignoring it. But now when you look at the governance and you kind of, it's not about war, it's about building a future. I think that's a lot more appealing for folks. <laughs> Nadine, that was going to be my last question about um, uh, political recognition uh, of the autonomous administration in Northeast Syria and how that will protect religious freedom. Um, you've, just beautifully answered it. So um, I will just end this interview just by asking if you have any other comments for us or any messages for governments or messages to the people uh, of Northeast Syria or the Yazidis. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, 
I'm so um, so honored by the welcome the people of Northeast Syria have given me. Um, I've done nothing except just tell their story. I always say that you know they've done the hard work of building this government, of building a society that respects one another. And I know nothing's perfect. Of course, it's, it's this is a you know a, a young movement, and um, so I'm just I'm so proud to be able to come alongside them and, and tell their story. And and the way that that the people of Northeast Syria have protected Yazidis for so many years uh, it just gives me chills. It's 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 endearing to me that Yazidi community is so close to my heart and and so many of them have so much respect um, for the YPG and the YPJ and, and how they have cared for them and fought for them. And, you know, today is a, is a good time to remember that is, is as Amy um, Austin Holmes, who has done a lot of um, research on both Northeast Syria and, and Sinjar, you know, has, has told the story about there weren't genocides of Yazidis in Northeast Syria because they were protected um, by the security forces, by the YPG and the YPJ. And um, that's really a story I think that hasn't been told. So so today, as we remember the genocide of the Yazidis, um, just say thank you to the people of Northeast Syria for caring for Yazidis and, and Christians and other religious minorities that might have a different faith than your own. Um, and how this society they've been able to build together is one I hope um, can be a model for other um, war-torn, fragile areas as they try to find a way forward, can look at the people of Northeast Syria and say, hey, they did it in one of the most difficult places in the world. We can do it too. <laughs> what a beautiful way to end uh, this interview. Nadine Mainzer, the chair of the United States Commission on the International Religious Freedom. Um, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. And I'm sure you know people would want me to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all the dedicated um, and principled work that you have um, done in relation to the Yazidis and, and, and in relation to the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Oh, thank you so much. It's very kind.